0: Lord, we've gathered in your house. We've been blessed in song and reading and giving. Now, Lord, may our hearts be impressible by your Spirit. We love you, Lord. May we walk in your path and know the joy you intended. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm going to tell the story surrounding the most famous verse in the Bible. So if you don't know it, take a Bible out of the pews and let's turn to it together. It's John 3.16. Many have committed this to memory. And this morning, we're going to look at how it came into being. And this is what the Bible says. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this nation is peculiarly a religious nation. And that tone or that culture is under siege. I have an article here up from The Independent in the United Kingdom, and it's entitled, Almost Half of U.S. Millennials Don't Know, Believe, or Care If God Exists. The study finds. It's a recent study. I'll read just a little bit. More than 4 in 10 millennials in the United States do not know, believe, or care if God exists, according to Arizona Christian University Research. A report produced by the university's Cultural Research Center concluded that the generation of Americans currently between 18 and 36 are threatening to reshape the nation's parameters beyond recognition, with 43% either atheist or apathetic towards the existence of of God. Now, if I was a member of that nation, if this was my culture that was being talked about, I'd have to ask myself, what value does the presence of God bring to benefiting society? I know just the other day, actually yesterday, as I was pulling away from a department store, I watched probably two or three cars go through the intersection when the light was clearly red. Now, I want to tell you, law-abiding is a beautiful thing. And I want to tell you, graciousness in the people you deal with. I was standing in a line and somebody asked me if I'd like to go in front of them because all I had was one item. It's a beautiful, gracious thing. I can tell you there are cultures, atheistic cultures in this world, places I have been where the only value that's operative is me first, And as if it's simple as standing in a queue to get a ticket to go on a train or an airplane, everybody crowding and having no qualms of conscience about cutting you off, etc. What does it mean to you to live in a society where the attributes of God as evidenced in the Ten Commandments matter? Now, it's not hard for a society to lose its way. As a matter of fact, if you tinker with education and you remove the presence of God... From the character building, you're left with minds that are powerful but with hearts that are untouched by the conscience, untouched by the sense of goodness and things that ought to be done for the betterment of man, not for money, not for personal gain. When it comes to the element of education, if you could change the way the parents are parenting and if you could change the way the teachers are teaching, within a generation or two, you could change the whole culture. And this is exactly what's gone on in our country over the last 50 years. And as Jordan Peterson will mention, a life without responsibility is a life without meaning. The problem is, is that we've become wealthier and more educated with more opportunity, and we've lost the sense of our humanity, of our flawedness. We've lost the sense of our carnal nature, which is naturally bad. And we found a generation that don't, doesn't, isn't very aware. They don't reflect very much. There's an absence of this sense. There's a basic vacuum of calm reflection and thinking in our society. And consequentially, people are moving on, not aware that they're lost and in need of a Savior, and seeing God and religion is in the way of progress. I want to take you into the Bible, into a story of a man who saw himself in somewhat of the same way. Take your Bibles there. If you're in John chapter 3, we're going to look at the story of a very intelligent man by the name of Nicodemus, a member of the ruling class of the Jews in the day of Jesus, a one who did not see himself in need of the presence of the Messiah that was upon the face of the earth at that time, and yet indeed his need would be brought to his attention. John chapter 3, looking at verse 1, the New Testament gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The Pharisees were a group of people that were in charge of making sure the society of the nation kept the law. Nicodemus was one of them. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher in Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say unto you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, that's a reference to Jesus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now these next two verses are very important and they relate specifically to the article I mentioned of 43% of our millennials not caring, knowing, or believing in the existence of God. And we need to read them carefully. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world. But that the world might be saved through him. Praise God. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten. Son of God. This is judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds we're evil. Now let me make sure you understand what we just read. It's not the sole focus of my message. You have a very intelligent man who believes he's not lost. You have a prophet who has no professional education or training. He's a Galilean itinerant preacher. You have a poor man who's come from heaven. He's the creator of the universe. He spoke the cosmos into existence, and the billions and trillions of stars began sparkling. He doesn't look like who he really is. He's sitting there in a poor man's garb on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem, and a very well-to-do, well-informed, well-educated man to embarrass to be seen with Jesus in the middle of the day finds him in the dark of night. He comes with a compliment for Jesus and Jesus immediately tells him we can't have this kind of conversation because Nicodemus you don't understand who I am and you're not acknowledging your need a need only I can fulfill. Jesus tells him unless you're born again you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has been in the mindset of looking at things with the wrong set of glasses. In our scripture this morning we saw that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Now Nicodemus has an interest in understanding Jesus. Jesus has cleansed the temple in the last part of John chapter 2. He turned over the tables. He poured out the money. He drove the merchandisers out of the temple precincts. The children came and sat on his lap. There was joy. There was singing. And Nicodemus was, was under the same conviction that much was going wrong in the church, but he was not under the conviction that much was wrong in his own life. And so when He compliments Jesus as a teacher. Jesus says, in effect, I'm much more than a teacher. Unless you're born again, you'll never go to heaven. And for Nicodemus, this is a very alien thought because he's born of Abraham and he thinks he's got an automatic pass into the heavenly courts. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. It's not your lineage. It's not your parents. It's not the promises made to other people. It's the relationship you have with me. And Nicodemus, you're a sinner and you need what I've come to bring and you've got to be born again. Now, it's not a storyline of physical rebirth. This is a story of spiritual rebirth. It's the nature of man. It's the selfish, carnal nature that is able to be remade into the beautiful nature of Jesus. Nicodemus doesn't really understand this, and that's why Jesus is able to say to him, you mean, you don't understand that the carnal nature has to die and a new nature has to be reborn? You don't understand this? And for all of you listening to me here today, religion without rebirth is drudgery. But when a person understands the gift of God and the great sacrifice of Jesus, and they understand their own sinfulness, maybe the 57 other percent, the 43% of the millennials, I'm inviting all millennials listening to me this morning to understand Jesus told Nicodemus what he'd tell you and me. And that's without a new heart. There's no eternal life. There is no future. The new heart is a gift. You can't create it. It's given to you by Jesus. He died on a cross to make provision for you to receive that which has been thrown away by the human race. They wanted to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to do it their own way. Jesus came back to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and made a way for us to receive back which, that which was handed over to Lucifer who was represented as a snake in the tree in the Garden of Eden. Yes, Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus that all human beings are bad. They've been judged already. The universe doesn't need to judge you because the universe that's unfallen, the holy angels have looked down at little planet Earth and they've said they're all guilty. And that's why Jesus didn't come to judge because there's no question on the verdict. The heavenly courts were seated and when Adam and Eve chose to sin, it was clear Nothing was left up for discussion. Jesus came to give us, give us back that which we gave away. Praise God. Now here's the truth. The story of this man, Nicodemus, can only be read in the Gospel of John. He's not mentioned anywhere else. And John will cover him at the beginning. And John will cover him in the middle. And John will cover him in the end. And there's something super important about this man. Because if you're a parent, or you're a teacher, or if you have any kind of potential influence, you need to understand this is Jesus, the master teacher, the redeemer, talking with the teacher in Israel. And this message is about Jesus the prophet. He fulfilled three roles, prophet, priest, and king. And about Nicodemus the professor. And something had gone wrong in Jewish religion. Over a period of time, they had forgotten that every time they went into the sanctuary to sacrifice a lamb, they were reminding themselves that their sins, which were laid on the head of that lamb, were what took life. And it was our sins on the head of Jesus that led him to the cross and took his life as the God-man, fully God, fully man. You see, something had gone wrong in the nation of Israel, and there were a whole lot of them that didn't want anything to do with the bad people. They thought they were the good people, and this left Jesus with a challenge, especially when he dealt with the high-class, high-minded good people like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was drawn to Jesus, but he was still a little bit embarrassed to be seen with him in the middle of the day, so he comes in the night. And I want everybody here to know the Holy Spirit is drawing people today just like He did 2,000 years ago when Jesus was beginning His ministry. As a matter of fact, if you work for our church today, you need to understand that he's drawing all people, some who have never given their life to Jesus. He's drawing them. The love of God is calling them to be a part of his family. But for those that are in the family, and maybe even leading the system or working for the system like Nicodemus, he's calling them too. And there were many priests who responded. It took them a while. Some were baptized on the day of Pentecost. But there were some priests who realized the corruption in the temple, the selling of animals right into the shadow of the sanctuary was wrong. Some came to Jesus, some didn't. And I'm talking specifically to parents and teachers today. Some will respond to the drawing of the Holy Spirit to reform and let God change. And some will resist. All they want is the culture of the church. All they want is what they've known so far. But I want to remind everybody here today that Jesus is leading his people onto higher ground and a deeper walk with him. Now, Nicodemus finds an encounter in John chapter 7 with some of his friends. Turn there. John chapter 7, he leaves Jesus on that dark night on the Mount of Olives in chapter 3, and he goes away thinking. Jesus had said to him, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. That's an old story. The Israelites had been wandering through the wilderness. They were almost to the promised land. All of those years of wandering, the snakes had never bit them. Not one person of those two million traveling through the desert had ever been bitten by one of the poisonous vipers that lived in Saudi Arabia. But they come up to the end of their journey, almost, They've been complaining against God and against Moses again. God withdraws his protection from that group that was once slaves and is on their way to the promised land. And the snakes come out of the holes. And there's lots of snakes. They've been suppressed and protected. That is, the snakes suppressed and the people protected all along the way. The snakes come out and they start biting. And the solution to the snake bite is not antivenom. It is a bronze serpent put on a pole that's held up, and all you have to do is look and live. It's a miracle. You've been bitten by the snake. You're complaining. You're outside of the protection of God. God calls you back to a moment of self-awareness. You're not good. You don't deserve what he's doing. You've been bitten by the snake. In spite of the fact you're complaining against him, look to the snake and live. Now, the snake does not have power. As a matter of fact, you're saying to yourself, why a snake on a pole? Why the instrument of death lifted up on a pole? The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. In other words, Jesus took your sin and my sin and when he died on a cross, it's almost as revolting as looking at that snake. That snake showed the reason of death. Jesus hanging on the cross becomes repulsive as he takes on our sin and pays the price for that sin. That snake lifted up in the wilderness will represent Jesus when he's bearing all of our sin hanging on the cross. Yes, indeed, Jesus is teaching powerful lessons that will come back to Nicodemus' mind. John chapter 7, verse, we'll begin with verse 45. They've sent the temple officers to arrest Jesus, but they come back without him. Verse 45, John chapter 7. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he would come to him before being one of them, said to him, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears him and knows what he's doing, does it? They answered and they said, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. In this second chapter, we not only see that Jesus has drawn Nicodemus, but now Nicodemus is going to defend. Now, I want you to know what it's like to be bullied. Most of us have at one point in time. I can remember as a sixth grader being chased home from school in my public school. I can remember my fence, my, my body up against a cold chain leak fence as I'm surrounded by a group of people. This is a bullying moment. The, the temple guards that go to arrest Jesus, they're convicted by the power and the beauty and the love of Jesus, and they cannot lay hands on him, and they do not bring him back to the Pharisees. When they come back without Jesus, those that hold the power are going to belittle those who don't. And they're going to make it look like they're a bunch of ugly word, warning, spoiler alert, ignoramuses. Now, we don't go around calling people ignorant, and we don't usually call people ignoramuses. But in effect, that's what these men were doing. And they basically said, you mean, you didn't do what we said, and you're being duped by this Galilean prophet, or supposed prophet, and there's Nicodemus watching it all. Now, there's two things at play. If you're a person of power and you're a person who isn't, it's awfully unfair and unkind to, uh, to take your power and use it to demean and belittle someone who believes differently than you. As a matter of fact, when you find yourself in a conversation and a person has to resort to belitt- belittling, you can be sure they're on the wrong path. When a person cannot be calm and deliberate and objective, when you're in a form of a discussion that might even turn into a bit of a debate, maybe even an argument, when you have to take passion in the midst of an objective argument, I'm not talking about the passion that should be in place when you see a man beating a wife. I had a unique moment just this last week where I was driving down a road in this community, and I watched a man walk up and grab a stroller. Fortunately, the baby wasn't in it, and he lifted it up, and he threw it down. And so I decided I'm not leaving. I just parked my car where I could watch what was going on, and I watched a very unequal conversation go on within the last two weeks here where a man just berated and belittled for quite a little bit of time a young woman with a young baby. And while I didn't get out of my car to get myself inserted into it, I sat right there about 20 feet away with my window down, just watching. There's something about an absence of respect and an imbalance of power that can create a very problematic situation. And Nicodemus is watching this go on. And there's a battle going on in Nicodemus' mind, not unlike the one that goes on inside of us. But when you lose your cool in a regular discussion, it's because you've probably lost your way. And it's important for you to understand, if you're on the right path, you don't have to get mad to defend your idea. And if you're on the wrong path, getting mad might be the best evidence that you're headed to darkness, not light. Now, it's not that there's never a place for passion. But when you're going to exercise passion, it might be better on behalf of somebody else than on behalf of your own self or your own idea. So here is Nicodemus watching this this dialogue. And it's interesting in the book, Desire of Ages, the author states that in the Sanhedrin council, he had repeatedly thwarted the schemes of the priests to destroy Jesus. But now I want to go farther into the book, page 460, in the full tide of their discussion... Soldiers, temple guard, priest. In the full tide of their discussion, they were suddenly checked. Nicodemus questioned, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Silence fell on the assembly. The words of Nicodemus came home to their consciences. They could not condemn a man unheard. That's Jesus. But it was not for this reason alone that the haughty rulers remained silent gazing at him who had dared speak in favor of justice they were startled and chagrined that one of their own number had been so far impressed by the character of jesus as to speak a word in his defense recovering from their astonishment they addressed nicodemus with cutting sarcasm art thou also from galilee search and look for out of galilee ariseth no prophet You see, friends, Nicodemus is wading farther into the circle. He's letting his colors show. This teacher that was afraid to be who he really was, who the convicting power of God was calling him to be, was starting to come out from behind the shadows, out from behind the curtains, and declare that he was for Jesus. Now let's go to the last experience between Nicodemus and... And the Pharisees, in this case, Pilate. John chapter 19, verse 39, the third and final chapter involving Nicodemus. John chapter 19, verse 39. It says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as the burial custom. Of the Jews. Now, in place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid him there. Jesus has died. Nicodemus was there. Those words in his mind as the serpent lifted on the pole. Writing again in Desire of Ages, the author states, Nicodemus, when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, remembered the words spoken that night on the Mount of Olives. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. On that day when Nicodemus, on that day when Christ lay in the grave, Nicodemus had opportunity for reflection. Listen, this Sabbath day, a day for reflection. Is my life going the right way? Do I have freedom in my heart? Are my sins forgiven? Is my life right with Christ? Nicodemus was thinking. Christ was dead, laying in a grave. Nicodemus had bought and brought 100 pounds of anointing spices. A clearer light now illuminated his mind. And the words which Jesus had spoken to him were no longer mysterious. He felt that he had lost much by not connecting himself with the Savior during his life. And now he recalls the events of Calvary. Yesterday for Nicodemus was Calvary, the cross. He watched Jesus. He saw him die. And this is what's flashing through the mind of Nicodemus, the prayer of Christ for his murderers. Father, forgive them. And his answer to the petition of the dying thief, these spoke to the heart of the learned counselor. And again, he looked upon the Savior in his agony, and he heard that last cry, it is finished, spoken like the words of a conqueror. And again, the earth reeling, he he was reliving it and the darkened heavens, and the rent veil in the temple, and the shivered rocks, and his faith was forever established. The very event that destroyed the hopes of the disciples convinced Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus of the divinity of Jesus. An amazing moment. Nicodemus comes forward right to the very front. Again writing, A Desire of Ages, Nicodemus came boldly he employed his wealth for sustaining the infant church that the Jews had expected to be blotted out at the death of Christ. And that time of peril, he who had been so cautious and in questioning was as firm as a rock, encouraging the faith of his disciples and furnishing means to carry forward the work of the gospel. He became poor in this world's goods, yet he faltered not in faith. Friends, I want to end with this thought. If you're a parent listening to me here today, hear these words. Great is the responsibility of those who take upon themselves the guidance of a human soul. The true father and mother counts this parenting a trust from which they can never be wholly released. The life of a child from his earliest to his latest days feels the power of that tie which binds him to the parent's heart. The acts and the words, the very look of the parent, they continue to mold the child for good or for evil. And now if you're a teacher especially, the teacher shares this responsibility and he or she needs constantly to realize the sacredness to keep in view the purpose of his work. And one last thought. Heaven is a school. Now for some of you, that's bad news. You don't like school. But don't worry. This will be the best school you've ever attended. There'll never be one moment of confusion. There'll never be one boring lecture. There'll never be one bullying moment. There'll never be one moment when you don't feel like you belong. Everyone there will find the thrill of learning because the classroom will be the University of the New Jerusalem and the primary instructor will be Jesus himself. It's going to be an amazing place. And wouldn't it be sad if we didn't graduate to that eternal existence and opportunity? You see, all of our young people are to be taught by their parents and by their teachers and of course by others that their life has a purpose, that there are duties, and that there is this grand cause for which they fulfill a peace that nobody else could fulfill. Last week I was in Canyon City, Colorado speaking at a Regional camp meeting. And there is a gentleman there who has a ministry called the Heavens Declare. He makes binocular telescopes. Just as of late, a billionaire from Texas called him up and, want, and brought him down to Texas where he watched the launching of one of Elon Musk's rockets. And he wants him to build a binocular telescope where every eyepiece is 36 inches across. It's never been done before. I mean, this is a Seventh-day Adventist scientist, a man of no ordinary ability. And he put on a slideshow in which he made this statement, which was so fantastically impressive to me. His name is Jim Burr. He said, when God was finished with the universe, he looked at it and he said, there's just one more thing I need to make. It won't be complete without you. And you are made unique. There is no one like you in the whole cosmos. And God foresaw in His omniscience, His all-knowingness, that you would be a unique creation in which the cosmos would not be quite the same if you weren't there. Imagine how He feels if you're not there in the University of the New Jerusalem to take all the things you learned on earth and let them have a fuller meaning. You see, friends, there's a purpose to this life. This earth is just a preparatory school for those who desire to be drawn, like Nicodemus was drawn, a bit embarrassed of Jesus, no doubt. But are we willing to let Jesus show us the things about ourselves that he'd like to change? He doesn't come into your life to condemn you, even though he'll have to talk with you about some things that will need to change. But you don't even have the power to change them. Only Jesus can do that. But will you let him? You see, friends, the day is coming soon in which the liberty of Americans will be no more. The Bible predicts that this liberty-loving nation will find itself exercising authority that makes the monarchs of the past look like child's play. And for Americans being told what to do is very offensive, but something tragic is in the future. I don't know what it is, the Bible doesn't tell, but something is tragic and traumatic enough in the future to where this nation, which holds that lamp of liberty alight, is going to snuff it out for the well-being of the world. I'm appealing to you this morning. We, like Nicodemus, are afraid to be different. We're afraid to say, I'm with God, and God's ways can't line up with this. We're afraid to lose friends. We're afraid to lose jobs. We're afraid family members won't understand. I'm appealing to you to let the drawing power of Jesus draw you in. And when you need to take a stand for Jesus, like Nicodemus did there with the temple guards, go ahead, stand up, show your colors. And I'm appealing to you this morning, especially parents and teachers, Be who you're supposed to be no matter what it costs you. Now, I'm far enough into this parenting thing to where I want to assure you this. If you'll raise your kids for Jesus, teachers, if you'll dedicate your hearts completely to partnering with the parents, someday, most of those children will rise up and call you blessed. If, on the other hand, you cave in to their uninformed and undisciplined desires... You will watch them move like a pinball from dysfunction to dysfunction until finally they end up caught in an unavoidable trap of their own making. You see, friends, Jesus comes to each of us today and He says, I love you. I died for you. I'd like to save you. I'm asking you to surrender your life and follow Me. Our educational system is set up to partner with parents to do that. There may be some listening to me here today who ought to consider enrolling their young people in our schools. We accept from a variety of backgrounds, our schools are not only for Seventh-day Adventists, but they are places where parents who desire a better way and anticipation of heaven would like to partner with our administrators and our teachers. And this morning, I'm appealing to this congregation to remember this. The lowly Galilean prophet who spoke the world into existence will speak to you too. And as he said to Nicodemus, I, if I be lifted up, I'll make provision for the redemption of man. Like that serpent on the pole, it will be me hanging there for you. I'm not just a teacher, Nicodemus. I'm the Savior of the world. And I've come to save you too. You see, friends, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. He loves you. And today he's calling you. Let the prophet speak to you, like the prophet spoke to the Pharisee of old. And may we walk in the narrow path of life, trusting in Jesus, all the may. We may draw nearer to Jesus, and he will draw near to us. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.